It's hard to feel free when the world is crashing down around us and we're shut up in our homes practicing social distancing. But you don't have to feel trapped. You can write your way to freedom. Welcome to the Right Away Podcast. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Right Away Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kane, and it is May 12th as of this recording. A friend recently asked me to read over a first draft for them. I'm always struck with anxiety and vulnerability in these situations. When someone invites you in to respond to their work, especially in an early nascent stage, they're placing a massive amount of trust on your shoulders. And I might overthink it a little, but I feel very strongly about what kinds of responses ought to be given when you're not a paid editor. Well, even as a paid editor, but that's a whole other thing. I almost always ask what kind of response the author is looking for. Because if they're asking, does this make sense? Do my ideas connect well? And my response is, "Mm, your prose is clunky. That's neither helpful nor kind. If I don't ask what kind of response they want, I will tell the author what kind of response I am willing to give, which is always a reader response. I will do my best to recreate my reader experience for you. That kind of response isn't very vulnerable for me. I state up front that it's just opinion and they are willing to take it or leave it. I note things that are awesome, that bore me, where I get distracted from the story or put it down, that confuse me, or that I don't believe. And I'll link to a guide on that in the show notes. But the kind of response my friend asked for was the first kind, the deeper kind. I was worried about inadvertently stomping on the raw emotions that my friend was trying to convey in their piece, or that I would discourage them from continuing. I couldn't control how my words would be perceived. That's a raw spot for me right now. Anyone who has gone through a breakup knows that at the end, it's nearly impossible for you to get your partner to understand what you mean. I have wrestled with being misunderstood a lot recently. I was so tempted to give a quick and kind of generic response because I was afraid of challenging my friend and pushing them and being perceived as bossy, trying to push their words in a direction they didn't intend, or any other number of interpretations I couldn't quite anticipate. Thankfully, I know this friend has some really tough skin and that emboldened me to practice digging into my realness and vulnerability and say the things I was scared to say. They said thank you and I may never know how my response was interpreted. I felt a little exhausted by all the mental hoops my brain put me through trying to craft my simple but true response, but I was confident that I didn't hold back while using my words kindly and strongly. Vulnerability is a skill, and like all skills, it has to be practiced. Vulnerability is going to be a bit of a theme today. I have watched Mallory Cooper practice vulnerability very publicly over the last year. She's come to understand herself as trans and sharing her story online. It was a wonderful talk, and I hope you enjoy it. I am happy to welcome my friend Mallory Cooper to the podcast. Mallory is also known as MD Cooper and is really known in indie circles for writing the the book, um, Help My Facebook Ads Suck, Um, and most of her books are in the Aeon 14 world, which is mostly sci-fi, but as she said multiple times, uh, 
you can write just about any genre in Aeon 14 and she's built it that way uh, to satisfy her creative needs, correct? I did, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, I'm excited. Um, and I told you before we started that I wanted to read this quote from your book, which I didn't know existed until you mentioned it uh, yesterday. Um, the book that you wrote is Mallory Cooper called How Leggings Changed My Life. Mm -hmm. And I highlighted this quote because I thought it was so good for our conversation. Um, if I don't know how to love myself as I am now, how will I know how to love myself when I reach my goals? Um, let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> sure. So loving yourself and freedom, like we've been talking a lot about freedom, like how, how has that been problematic for you uh, in your life? Like having to learn that lesson, like what was, what was that process like for you that this became something that you had to write about? Well, so um, I'm transgender and for a lot of my life, I basically couldn't stand to look at myself. Um, I felt like the person I would see in the mirror wasn't me and I didn't understand how to make it feel like it was me. Um, it took quite, quite a long time for me to, even though it's funny, even though I spent most of my life dreaming of being a girl every time I went to sleep, it took until my 40s to realize that I was actually transgender because I had built up all these rules about what being trans actually meant and why it couldn't be me. Um, and so once I realized that I was trans, I kind of, it, when you realize it, and, and this is something I've learned from talking to a lot of trans people, it makes you, makes your, your dysphoria worse because now it's, it's before it's kind of like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm a, I'm a freak. I'm weird. And then once you realize you're trans, you're like, no, it's my body that's wrong. And then seeing parts of your body, I mean, it's always been there, but then seeing your body reminds you even more about how wrong you are and about how hard it's going to be to, to be the way you want to be. Um, and it can kind of create a lot of self-loathing that can be a pretty hard thing to deal with. And I'm sure lots of other people experience the same sort of thing for other reasons, um, be it emotional or physical self-loathing, where they're upset with something they've done in the past, they're blaming themselves for something and they, they take it out of themselves over and over again. And you end up stopping yourself from healing. And so what I realized um, in that, it was actually during that event that I, I, wrote, I wrote about, it was, it was having to look at myself naked while I was shaving to go for laser. Um, which the first couple of times I did it usually had me on the floor crying through a part of the, through the process. Um, but I, I realized that if I don't understand, if I don't understand how to look at myself and love myself the way I am now, I just won't know how, you know, like, I'm, you know, you always, cause you always hear stories with people who always get everything they want and they're not happy. And I realized that, that the happiness that I want to have had to come inside of me and had to be there all the time. It couldn't be something that I would get only when I reached a certain point. I had to do, know how to do it now. So this was about a year ago, right? That that a lot of in, in April 2019 that all of this kind of culminated for you. And at that point, you were very successful already as a writer, correct? I was, yeah. yeah I, and, I think. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. And do you think that having kind of reached some of these writer goals kind of freed up your mind to think about this more? Or I'm just curious, like how. I, yeah, I think it did because what it what happened in 2018? I did, I put out 44 books in in that year, 
And I knew it wasn't something I could do long term. I knew I was going to need a break. And I sort of scheduled a break for myself in um, January and February of 2019, where I only had to put out, I think, one or two books in that entire span. And one of them was co-authored, so it was going to be cake to get that one done. And um, I took almost a month just sort of to reconnect with myself and spend some time getting to know myself. And what I realized as I went through all of that was that um, I, I had been suppressing a lot of who I wanted to be. And I sort of, sort of started feeling it out with some friends, talking with them, and kind of going out presenting a lot more uh, gender queer. kind of like it was hard to tell if I was a guy or a girl the, for a while the way I was dressing. And, and I found that, um, one, people didn't abandon me and run off. And, and two, it, was, it felt more freeing. And uh, that sort of kicked off this journey. So yeah, it definitely was the fact that the success of, that I had as a writer gave me the opportunity to spend more time reflecting than I'd been able to do in a long time. Do you think that you would have been able to come to this understanding of yourself if you'd stayed in software development? I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I actually knew a couple of trans people who, who worked in the same companies I worked in um, over the years. So software development, especially in Boston, there's no problem at all with being, with being trans. Um, but I don't know if I would have had the time to do it because I'm sort of the kind of person where I throw myself into something all the way. Like when I, when I started a new job in software development, I'm working like 70 to 80 hours a week um, kind of thing. And uh, I don't know if I would have had the time for reflection or if I would have had the, the freedom to experiment um, as well. That's honestly, I, that just, I hadn't even thought of it until you even mentioned it. I'm trying to think of like how I would have done this if I was still working a nine to five job and I can't even imagine how I would have pulled it off. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of extra side freedoms that come from the whole writing full-time gig. How long have yeah. you been writing full-time now? Um, January 1st, 2017 is when I went full-time. So. so you've been going hardcore for just over two years now. Mm -hmm. That's really intense. I mean, and so how, how quickly were you putting books out in the beginning? Well, I only put out four books between 2012 and 2016. And then 2017, I want to say I did like 14, maybe 16 books, and then ramped it all up to 44 books in 2019, or sorry, 2018. Then 2019, I was back down to like 24 or so, and that's something roughly what I'm gonna do this year too, I think. So I have a question with that massive amount of output that you have maintained. Mm -hmm. um, how do you deal with the idea of burnout or have you hit burnout before? Is it something you're concerned about? Um, I think I've, I totally burned out one time. Um, and I've, I've just about, I've come close once or maybe twice since, and I'm better at recognizing the signs of it now. Uh, one of the ways that I deal with it though, is by having co-authors, um, co-authors, the way that I work, co-authors don't really accelerate the writing process so much as they, give the opportunity for new story ideas that I don't have to come up with. Um, so I find that sometimes when the creative juices just aren't flowing, having a co-author to work with to bounce ideas off of and to, to come up with exciting ideas or just to take something that they wrote and just go through, through an editing process on it, it's a lot easier. So that saved me a couple of times when I didn't have anything to come out. And I think sometimes too, it's just a matter of burnout is just your, your body and your mind saying, you just gotta take a break. 
you know, you just got to like take a step back and do something else for a little while. I am lucky in that because I do all of this speaking as an author, I go, I mean, last year, I think I went to 10 or 12 different writer conferences and I would have again this year, but that sort of changed, unfortunately. But um, that gives me some breaks too, because whenever I go to a conference, I don't write while I'm there. I'm not the sort of person that can like, you know, bang out a couple of hours in the morning and then go to sessions in the afternoon. It's, that's, that's pretty hard for me. So I do have a lot of those opportunities to recharge as well. Yeah, and you're one of the most extroverted authors I know. So those are total recharge points for you, aren't they? Oh, they are. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I don't know very many authors who are extroverted like me, like maybe a handful. Yeah. We're, we're a pretty rare group. It's not a bad skill, though. Yeah. Um, I should I should say, by the way, I used to be super introverted. When I was a teenager, my friends used to have to come to my house and drag me outside. So it's... It what change. changed? Um, I think... I think a lot of what I had when I was younger is I didn't, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and so I wasn't willing to put myself out there and it caused me to just sort of like retreat into books and into my own imagination. And as I got older and I started to build up more self-confidence and get wins under my belt, I realized, Hey, like I have no reason to hide. And I guess somewhere through that process, I don't know if I've always been an extrovert and I was just in hiding or if just feeling confident around other people, maybe want to be around other people more. It might be a combination of those two things. Very possibly. I wanted to um, talk about like your writing speed as well, because um, mm -hmm. one thing I have been um, impressed by as we've been doing sprints together is that you you aren't ashamed of writing slowly in sprints. It's true. I'm probably consistently the slowest person in our sprint group. And yet you pretty consistently have some of the highest daily word counts. <laughs> yep. Um, have you ever felt pressured to write faster or have you just always accepted that that's how you do things? It's, I mean, it works for me. So I certainly don't want to mess with it too much. But yeah, I've never, I've never felt the pressure to write faster because um, I guess I have this empirical evidence that I get a lot of books done and I see my daily word counts and I hit them every day. So I'm like, you know, even though I'm, I'm the tortoise basically, you know, tortoise in the hair, I'm, I'm gonna make it across that finish line. It's just gonna take me a little bit longer. But also on the flip side, um, a lot of, um, today will be an example of that because I was falling asleep while I was writing, but a lot of times when I, when I write in a sprint, so if I'm doing six, 700 words an hour, I can handle those words directly to my editor without ever looking at them again. So I, I feel that even though I write slower, um, I, have a, I put out a pretty good quality product. At least I think I do. Maybe people seeing me as I'm sprinting are like, dear God, now you're no good at this, but. <laughs> I'm sure you're wonderful. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen your pre-edited manuscript, so I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but I'm really curious about this, this innate confidence because even, I know a lot of people and I don't know if it's an extrovert introvert thing or um, you've mentioned in your book that you think that you're probably somewhere on the autism spectrum so i don't know if it has to do with that um but a lot of people who have processes that work still have this sense that they ought to be doing things differently that they ought to be measuring up faster uh to be faster to produce more um what why do you think that you haven't necessarily struggled with that as much oh actually i um and this is, I, I've, I've not kept a lot of, so I grew up with an evangelical Christian background. Um, and I don't 
really keep a lot of things from that with me. But one of the things I learned from a pastor that I had was that um, most of what we think about ourselves is very subjective. Humans are not particularly good at objectively, objectively measuring um, ourselves on a daily basis. We have to have external objective um, measurements to, to, that are unchanging. Um, and of course, in Christianity, they, say, they, would, they would say that's the Bible, but I've, I've sort of applied that to other things. And so I look at my, I look at my, the number of novels I produce and I look at my daily word counts and that's my objective measurement that despite the fact that I'm slow, um, tells me that I'm doing a good job and that I'm able to, you know, I'm, I'm able to do this. And I do that with a lot of things. I, um, I really make sure that I, I make my decisions based on things outside of myself that I can look at and that are consistent and say, okay, this is how well I did last month. This is how I did the month before. I'm, I'm a little bit above or I'm a little bit below because it is really easy to, without sort of those, those, those North stars, things beyond yourself that you can look at in the horizon to tell where you're going. It's very easy to get led astray or worried or tangled up. So I, I focus a lot on, on, on things like that to make sure that I'm, I'm always going the right direction. Yeah, we talked, um, as we were setting up this meeting, we talked about, you know, we're both numbers people. We like knowing like, you know, how much did I make? How, much, how many sales did I have? Um, mm -hmm. And those are good information and data points, but not necessarily things to pin your success on 100% completely. Yeah. Um, and you have a very clear vision of the next few years of the books you want to write. What is your, so in that quote I read at the beginning, um, you have clear goals. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you set those goals? What do those look like for you? Um, so I, this is actually something I learned from several years in software development and I was, I was um, sort of a, I was everywhere in software, develop, software development. I was managing big teams. I was part of the product team. I was in daily meetings with developers and I was writing code myself. So I was kind of all over the place all the time. And one of the things that I learned with my exposure to the management side and the, and the, the product team where the people are setting goals and visions for multi-year product builds is that um, you need to set a big, hairy, audacious goal. You need to go out there and say, this is the crazy thing that I want to do. Um, and then you need to break it down into smaller point pieces and say, how am I going to achieve that crazy thing? And you break it down into pieces so small that um, they, they, fall, they fall into almost daily goals, but they're all still building towards that big, that we call it the, the bag or something like, big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah, bag. I guess it's kind of how you would pronounce that. And um, so I, and I always sort of keep that in mind, um, that this, my goal is to have somewhere between 400 and 500 books by 2030. And that means that I have to produce 20 to 25 books a month, a year to hit that goal. And that means, you know, that my, my daily output needs to be a certain amount. And I know, but, but at the same time, like I don't beat myself up for it because I know that that's a crazy goal. Um, so if I slip, I'm still doing really well. You know, I, I still stand a chance of, of being one of the most prolific science fiction authors of all time, even if I miss that goal. And well, that's sort of like, that's not my, that's not my, my driving force is part of it that I want to, I want to do this thing that hasn't been done before. And, um, and I don't know that everybody, I think everybody has to have something like that. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a volume of books. Maybe it's telling a certain type of story. Maybe it's like trying to mesh two worlds together, two ideas together. But I think it's important to have some sort of goal that you feel is unique and is a, 
is something that really expresses you in your work and then make sure that you're constantly driving towards that. So what would you say is your big driving force? Um, I want to tell a story that is as big as an actual human life. Like uh, when we, when, normally when you read a book, you're reading something that would take like say six to 10 hours to read aloud. It's, it's snapshots of, of life um, strung together in an interesting way. But it's not really so much of a person's life. You really get to see them go through decades of evolution, you know, and, and be with them the whole time. And to be honest, that wouldn't be a very interesting story because most of our lives are pretty freaking boring. But what I want to do is want to try and create a story that, that, even, that is about multiple people that is kind of that big, that you could actually spend a decade reading everything I put together um, if you're a more casual reader and, um, and sort of see, not just from my eyes, but from maybe like a dozen, dozen other authors all put together, what this vision of the future could be like. And, and in doing so, tell a lot of really human stories about people and how they deal with things. And also about um, one of the subjects we tackle a lot is the emergence of AIs in, in my books. And we tie a lot of a lot of the stuff about AIs is very analogous, analogous to human freedoms, you know, things you can do to people. What is privacy really? Um, stuff like that. We build it all into this massive framework about humans and AIs, the two dominant species, sort of like butting heads with each other as they as they evolve. And that's sort of there's a lot of it's not deliberate, but because it's a human story, it's written by humans, it has a lot of connections to things that go on in our world all the time. So I kind of hope to create a tapestry that is, is so big that it could actually be like a real human tapestry, because I don't feel that most books have the time to do that. That's, that's kind of what I'd, what I'd like to pull off. It's, it's a crazy goal, and who knows if I'll actually pull it off well, but I'm going to try. It's a beautiful and crazy goal. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So what... What does it look like? You've mentioned uh, like 2025 or 2030 is kind of being like the, the point of which you have a vision until then. What mm -hmm. does life look after that? Oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it could be anything at that point. I'm going to be in my fifties. So I probably won't be a pinup model anymore at that point. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I, I actually have enough stories in my head that I could tell stories in the Aeon 14 universe until I die, to be honest. There's, there's enough going on in there because I created a setting large enough that I could write any story in it. So I don't have to worry about world building a new place or anything like that. But I do, I don't know, I might, I might, I wouldn't mind like taking a year or so just to travel, like just to go around the globe and see a lot of different places. Um, I think that's got to be happened sometime at the end. I got to have a big reward for myself at the end of all of this, I think. And your so, daughter at that point, that she'll, is. yeah, your daughter will be a uh, late teens, early twenties at that point. That'll she'll, be delightful. She'll, yeah. Yeah. She'll be older. So either she'll be able to come with us and really enjoy it or she'll be off to do her own thing if she doesn't want to come. So yeah, it'll open up some options for us. But I, I kind of also, I don't mind living a simple life. Like we have a relatively small house, small yard, and I'm kind of happy with that. I used to find a bigger place room like I have. That would be kind of a fun goal too. So I have a question. Um, mm -hmm. I have plenty of questions actually, but what is the most joyful part of your day? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. 
Um, I kind of, it's funny, since, since quarantine has come into play, our family mornings have been a lot more enjoyable than they used to be in that we all just kind of hang out together for like an hour or so in the morning. And that's really nice. It used to be that everybody was rushing off to go do their things. But now I get up, or Jill, Jill gets up first and she usually makes, makes, starts making some eggs and I get up um, shortly afterwards because I don't like cold eggs. I like warm eggs and she knows this about me. So she's, she's making sure to make sure that all happens, that happens on, on a schedule. And then Eva gets up and we always kind of sit in the living room and talk. And um, eventually we start to go off in our various, various ways. And then we always have supper together, um, which is something that we've done most of the time, even, even before quarantine. And then after supper, we all play a game together. Um, right now it's Overwatch. Um, we actually have three Xboxes and we all have them all set up together and we're all playing Overwatch together. And then at the end of that, my daughter demands tickles. And I usually tickle her for like 10 to 20 minutes. And she's loud and screaming and driving Jill nuts, you know, when we're all having a grand old time. Like, it's, uh, I, so I think that actually those, those things are my favorite parts of the day. They, they bring me the most joy. I mean, I love writing and I love creating and whatnot, but you know, those, those times with my family, I think are the times that stand out the most. That's beautiful. Well, thank okay. you so much for sharing your time with me. This has been so delightful. Thank you. It's been great. Um, and uh, my past two guests, I asked to share a book, but because I read your, um, your memoir just before this interview, I'm going to recommend to anyone listening that they pick up How Wearing Leggings Changed My Life. Um, and you're working on the sequel, How Wearing Cat Suits Changed My World, correct? I am, yep. Excellent. Yeah. So keep a lookout for those. Bye. Thank you.